Without further ado, we're going to talk to Ben Gibbard here on The Doctor and the DJ. Some kind of evil coming from my computer. What happened to but you're recording. We're, we're we can just edit that together. People <laughs> will be into that, and we can talk about how much we love technology right now and never being in the same room as anyone. And remember know. when all this started? We were like, yeah, this is kind of a cool. I think we can kind of work with this. This is kind of right. it's nice to not commute. You know, it's nice to do stuff from home. It's kind of yeah, it's cool. I kind of like. I think I like it more. Yeah, yeah. We have crossed over. We have crossed over in the last, for me, the last two weeks has been the crossover back to, you know, I think we do need a West Seattle bridge. I think uh, I'd like to leave here and I'd like to go talk to people again because this sucks. And, you know, but at the same time, um, I never want to have to rush to a meeting where 10 people are in the same room ever again. So I don't know how we're going to change. We're fundamentally changed. We, We, you know how our grandparents went through stuff and they were always different. And it was hard to understand. We've all changed and we don't even know. Like when you see pictures of people in crowds, uh, you bristle. Even movies. Uh, We were watching, Amy and I were watching a movie the other day. Like It was like Field of Dreams. Like, oh God, don't don't hug your (laughs) lost dad from death, from heaven. Yeah, you don't know. You guys haven't gotten tested yet. (laughs) Every Yeah, I think there are some things that have, that we will carry over into whatever life looks like after this. One of them being that not every time we need to have a discussion, we need to get everybody in the same room and talk for 10 minutes. Sometimes we can just do this. But I think what this is teaching us is that being in person is kind of the only way to do multi-hour meetings without going insane. You have to be in a room with people. You have to be able to just have that kind of connection because at a certain point, there's this weird decline of comprehension and presence with people in this format where it just becomes completely counterproductive. Well, I, and I'm going to get back to like an intro, but I want, while we're talking about it and we're in the zone here about this thing, uh, one of my questions was going to be too, because I've been dealing with so many artists and their bands uh, and how they are making music. Because to me, not being in the same room as your bandmates, as people who make music together, I can't imagine what that process is like now. Well, we've, we've gotten creative with our methodology and the way we would normally do things is I would sit in this room and write a bunch of songs and then send them around to everybody on a Dropbox link. And people would be like, oh, I like that one. I like that one. Or I don't like that one. And we'd kind of compile a list of songs that we might make into an album. But in May or June or whatever, I kind of came up with this idea of like, why don't we just start writing almost like a game of telephone where we'll start a song from an atypical place, i.e. maybe Zach, our keyboard player, will send a piece of music on a Monday to Nick, our bass player, on a Tuesday. He will then send that piece of music to Jason, our drummer, who will send it to me, who will send it to Dave. And at the end of the week, we have a song. And we have a series of rules for this in that whoever has the piece of music in front of them has complete editorial control. So they can just say, yeah, I don't like that guitar line. It's gone. I'm not even sending it to the next person. Or I'm going to redo the drums Or, yeah, this doesn't have real drums. It has a drum machine. Or maybe this doesn't have a keyboard on it after all. So we've ended up with a number of songs in addition to the songs that I've been writing on my own that I think are really interesting for this band that I think will kind of 
represent an interesting new color palette that we're going to be able to bring to fans of the band. But having said that, there's also fatigue in working in that format. Initially, it was really exciting because we started getting a couple of things that were like, holy shit, this is really good. And we would have not have gotten here had we not been giving everybody complete creative control to do whatever they wanted. But everybody's pretty itching to get in a room and play music together and see which of these songs work, which of them don't. I mean, I love these guys. I want to hang out with them in a room and make dick and fart jokes, you know, because I'm 44. That's a normal thing <laughs> for a 44-year-old to do. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad that we're able to be connected in some fashion right now and be working on music, even in an atypical kind of methodology. And it certainly, I think, will be a part of what the next thing sounds like, but it doesn't compare with being in a room with people. I think we see, you know, with even these Zoom chats and, and the way we had meetings where, yeah, you start to see the advantage of these things and then the fatigue of them wears off and the lack of human connection and mm -hmm. human touch or bad jokes or whatever it might be that you're losing in person is, is having an effect as well that we will, that will affect for a long time, in my opinion. Um, ben Gibbard is here with us here on the Doctor and the DJ podcast. Thank you for taking the time today as well. Um, we are all, all here in Seattle talking, uh, miles apart. We are stranded out here in West Seattle. Uh, Ben's over in uh, in in the center of anarchy, uh, Capitol Hill, which it is not. Um, <laughs> ben, I, and I'm going to ask you about that in a sec because sure. our bar, uh, as you know, is located in 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 that area as well. And I want to get back to that really quick. But Amy, you had a. I'll let Amy take over. I think it's really interesting what you were saying about your creative process and how we've had to innovate because that's what we've had to do in this time. And, you know, one of my favorite ways to innovate is to think, what is the worst possible thing I could do right now <laughs> in this situation, right? Yeah. You know, and just start brainstorming on the worst possible thing you could do. And you actually come up with some really awesome ideas. But John and I, you know, in this time, we've been talking a lot about hope and what that means to people. And you know, not a sense of false hope, like wishful thinking and just talking about wishing, but hope, the way I define it is belief plus expectation plus desire. And then with modeled behavior, right? Because you can have hope if you can see it modeled. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you about that and we can segue right into running. We know you're an ultra marathoner and a runner, and you've got to have a lot of hope to start doing that and see that modeled for you. And then you yourself are modeling that for other people. What was the moment you said, I got to run, I got to start running. This is the thing I want to do. I guess it started in 2007. I was going to this gym in Fremont and I would just go and I don't know, do some push-ups and sit-ups and do an elliptical for a half hour or whatever it might be. Nothing, you know, nothing really kind of uh, organized. And I started seeing people running on a treadmill and I started thinking like, you know what, I could maybe run like, I could run at least a mile, right? I could do that. So then I, one day I just kind of went over to the treadmill, hopped on and just set it and ran for a mile and thought like, okay, well I did that. And then the next time I went, I was like, maybe I could run for two miles. Maybe I'll do the elliptical for 20 minutes and maybe I'll run for two miles. Maybe that's a good workout. Maybe that's something that I should be doing. Eventually I kind of moved out of the gym and started running around my neighborhood and I started running before I quit drinking in 2008, but when I quit drinking, running became something that I had to do. And it wasn't as if I had to run, otherwise I would relapse. It was just that running 
you know, I think for people when they, you know, talk to a runner and they are not runners, they'll say something like, oh, I, oh, I tried it. I just can't, uh, just not for me. It just hurt too bad or I have bad knees or whatever it might be. And I think one thing that everybody who's starting to run has to kind of work through is that it's going to suck for a while. It's not going to feel good. It's going to feel like you're doing something wrong. Your body's telling you, hey man, we don't do this. We put beer and liquor and pizza in here and we don't move. That's not what we do. We, we're not, we don't do this. And I had to kind of slowly beat my body into submission. Like, no, we're doing this and we're going to run four miles four times a week or whatever it might be. And that's just going to be what we do. And eventually it started to feel good. And I started to get that classic runner's high that people always talk about. And so when I quit drinking, it just became a more of a, a focal point of my life. Like this is something I have to do every day. And I didn't really step past those shorter distances for a, a while until on a whim, I signed up for the LA marathon in 2011, but I'd never even run a half. And in keeping with my personality that I just never see the point of going halfway with something. What's the point? Why, why do a half? Just do the whole thing. And that's not always a best way to kind of go through life uh, because, you know, I think that's also what turned me into an alcoholic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and one thing kind of led to another. I signed up for a trail race on accident, not realizing that I was signing for a trail race. And I showed up at the start and I was asking people, where is this race going? And they were like, we're going over that hill. This is a trail race. And I was wearing road shoes, like Brooks Adrenalines and some dumb hydro pack. And I looked like a total noob. Uh, but I had the best time. I, I had so much fun. And I learned that people ran farther than a marathon. What's that all about? Well, I got to try that. And every distance that I've kind of worked my way up to just became a new challenge and a new way to kind of see if I could do it. You know, I do it for the sense of accomplishment that I get and the sense of structure that training gives my life especially as a professional musician, there's very little time of my life that is actually structured. It's an important part of structure that I put into my life. But also, you know, I'm sure you guys know this too. When, you, when you're running long distances, you get into a flow state where everything just falls away and you're just this being in space and anything in your life that is not running does not exist in that moment. And people do all sorts of things to get to that point. But running has become that vehicle for me to get there. So Ben, you told me the other day that, that you had an injury uh, and you haven't been able to run for a little while. What's the injury and how long has it been since you've been able to run? I have a tear in my labrum uh, of my, my left hip. I think it kind of came on about this time last year and I didn't really know what was going on. And I kind of ran through it and worked with a strength coach because I thought it might be just a soft tissue thing. Um, and I ran a couple of 50Ks and a couple of 50 mile distances on it and thought like, this is really weird because it does, it does, it didn't present like a normal injury. It wasn't, it's not an injury where you do more and it hurts more. Uh, it just kind of comes in and out without any real kind of rhyme or reason. So eventually in September, I got an MRI and they said, yeah, you have the small tear in your labrum. You're gonna have to not run for at least two months and um, work with a physical therapist, do some strength work and some other cardiovascular stuff like that's not running. So I think when I when I first realized that I was going to be not running for at least two months, there was this panic of, you know, what am I going to do if I can't run? Who am I as an athlete if I'm not a runner? I, can I say I'm a runner? Can I say I'm an ultra runner if I'm currently not running? <laughs> and my wife was also really concerned even before this injury of what would happen if I got injured and couldn't run. She was like, I don't think I want to be around you if you can't run. Uh, but 
it's certainly been a journey. It's been difficult. And I think I'm a couple of weeks away from being able to try a little bit of running. I think my training as an ultra runner has also been beneficial in going through recovery because you recognize that over the course of this particular journey, there's going to be ups and downs. They're going to have good days and bad days. And you're just going to have to put you know the proverbial one foot in front of the other until you're on the other side. So one of the bright spots of this for me is that I've been just swimming a ton. I bought a wetsuit and I've been swimming out in Alki and in Green Lake. I swam for two hours today in Green Lake and it was like wow. a trip. It's, I mean, it's freezing, <laughs> uh, even in a wetsuit, but it's, it's rekindled that love of swimming for me. And I've realized through this period of being injured that, you know, I'm de I definitely identify as an ultra runner, but I also just really enjoy long periods of being self-propelled, whether that's running, swimming, biking, hiking, whatever. I just, I just like to be self-propelled and I like to do it for long periods of time. So, uh, I'm certainly itching to get back to running, but you know, some of the stuff I've been able to do in the water that I haven't done since I was in high school has also been really uplifting. It's kind of scratched that itch a bit. I ran, um, Portland and years ago and, uh, you know, I, I did well and I, and I finished, I had a little bit of soreness and, um, I trained probably a little too hard as the first marathon I'd, I'd run. And then I, I got, you know, home and a few days pass and I'm going to go run three miles just to, you know, cause I can do anything now. My God, yeah. I just ran 26 miles, my best time. I got a mile in, in my Achilles tour. Oh, um, God. Com I completely went down. Like I, I, I had to, I remember I had to get help, um, from someone to get home a mile away. Like I was, you know, hobbling in and what happened to me was the same thing. Who am I? I've been training. And, and for me, it's, it's to battle depression. I realized without even knowing it, like you, you say about recovery, that it was doing um, such wonders for my um, battle with depression. And I immediately went to swimming and I'd never really swam really since I was a kid. I remember getting in the pool and looking around at how people swam because I, I just mm -hmm. remember when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to die in this pool. And I went to, um, it was Seattle Central Community College's uh, pool. And I just watched people and I swam and I started to take the bike. And, and so I guess, you know, and this, this is pretty easy to tie into the pandemic as well. You know, when you take these things away from people, many things can happen. And we're finding different avenues to be creative, to help ourselves and help others. And you're someone who's been doing that for years now. And and you were one of the first that pivoted really, I mean, I have to say pretty quickly, you know, how we talk about how like Zoom chats and all this, we didn't, I didn't even consider this a thing nine months ago. When I first saw you were going to do a broadcast from your home, I remember thinking like, what? well, that's pretty amazing. Nobody's really doing that, which seems so <laughs> innocent to me now because yeah. a lot of people are doing that. And we actually aired on KXP, your very first one. It was, it was amazing. I think you were covering Radiohead and I was, yeah, uh, yeah, Amy, yeah. And I, Amy and I were just, I think we pulled the car over and we we're just like, oh, you really helped us that day. Like you really honestly made me feel like I could do this that day. And, and every day we need that thing. And you were that thing that day. And tell me how that came about, how, how you thought to do that. Well, first off, thank you. That, that really means a lot. Um, my manager, Jordan Curland had reached out right around the initial lockdown and he had suggested, Hey, it might be a good idea to maybe you should do a, like a live stream. Maybe we should play some shows, some songs on YouTube or whatever for people. And for whatever reason, I, 
said, yeah, uh, let's do that. And I want to do it every day for a month or something. Or I picked some, I picked some arbitrary length of time. And he was like, uh, sure. If that's something you want to do. Says the guy who will only run the very long distances. I'm not shocked by that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. This is, you're going to see, there's a definitely a pattern here. So I just committed very early to doing a lot of these. And I really appreciate everyone who's messaged me or on the rare occasion that you're out in public and somebody recognizes you from six feet away in a mask. I appreciate everybody who has said that those shows were very helpful to them. And I, I, I certainly recognize that, but I didn't think, yeah, I really need to help people. It was just, this is the thing that I do. And there might be some people out there who would like this. And selfishly, I would like it because, you know, I'm also existing in this pandemic too. I'm also terrified. I also have no idea what the next week is going to look like, let alone the next month or year. And playing music in front of people is something that I've done for 30 years. Um, so initially the idea was, yeah, let's just play some songs. I don't know how long I'll play, but over the course of days into weeks, and then I guess into months, it was really pretty amazing to see this community that started to develop around these shows. And I would go into the chat maybe 15 minutes before I'd start playing and I would notice that I would start noticing the same screen names. I would notice that people were talking to each other. And I would notice that people were discussing pretty heavy shit with each other and that people were tied into each other's lives. They would say like, oh, so I, I didn't end up losing my job. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Do you need anything? I don't know. You know, people or like, yeah, I got that. Uh, you know, it looks like, you know, I'm going to be able to make it through the next month. My rent came through, whatever kind of stuff. And then, you know, people saying, I wonder if he's going to play this or that. He hasn't played this yet. And I go like, oh, I haven't played that yet. I'm going to play that today. And from, you know, when I, sometimes I'll be asked questions about like, did you know that that when you wrote that song, that that song would be this in the world? It would provide people with this emotional palette or they would it would be a salve in times that were difficult for them or whatever. And the answer was always no. I never, I mean, what kind of psychopath would think, you know, after they wrote a song, like, you know, this song's really going to help a lot of people. You know, that, that's like, <laughs> that's such a narcissistic, horrible thought for somebody to have. Like, oh, it's so, one, you know, I really wrote a song that's really going to, really going to help people through some tough times. You know, you don't, you don't think like that. You just write what you're going to write. You play the shows that you're going to play. And this was very much an extension of that. And only as it, progressed that I realized that this was something that was really important to people that were tuning in and that I had developed a responsibility to them to not just one day disappear. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it forever, uh, but this had gone from just like, yeah, this would be a fun thing to do for a couple of weeks to like, oh, this is something that um, this group of people are, are really looking forward to and kind of retroactively became something that was an important thing to be doing. To be an artist in a time like this, if, if you it, like when we look back, uh, I, I think back to like the late 60s when there was just civil strife and, and civil rights and so much uh, going on um, in the world and how much artists played a part in that for people being there. We're in that period. Yeah. What I was going to say is that it takes endurance. It takes grit. Yeah, it turns and, out. And... Ben, all, everything you're talking about, you know, well, I ran four miles and then I ran a marathon and then I ran ultra marathons, you know, that's your personality. And so when you show up to play those home sessions, what you inadvertently did for people was modeled endurance. 
And so if you want to tie this back to health and mental health and wellness and all of that, it takes a certain amount of like physical grit to get through the mental grit and to endure all of it together. I agree. But I think it's also important to recognize that I am in a very different position than the overwhelming majority of Americans and people who are going through this pandemic. Um, I am not worried where my mortgage payment is going to come from. I, uh, my wife and I do not have children, so we're not dealing with working jobs and or not working jobs and also trying to be teachers, something that we're not actually qualified to do. This has been difficult on everybody in, in some very similar ways and some very unique ways. And I think for people in my position, this has been a time where I've felt even more of an obligation to help people than I would even on just a normal year. And I'm not saying that to be self-aggrandizing or anything like that, but you know, we are sit we are sitting here on Capitol Hill with, without the concerns that most people are having right now. And therefore I think that we have an obligation to help people out in, in whatever way we can right now. But I think also as an endurance athlete, I do have a particular skill set that maybe the average Jane or Joe doesn't have. Yeah, you know, I I haven't really thought of that in that way until you brought it up. But yeah, I do think being an ultra runner certainly plays into one's ability to kind of view this like an ultra marathon. You're you're going to have some highs and some lows and some really lows, and you're just going to have to keep putting one foot in front of the other because nothing nothing lasts forever. No feeling lasts forever. No heartache. No physical pain. No moment of uh, anxiety lasts forever. These moments are going to pass. And the only way we, they are going to pass is if we walk through them and we just keep putting one foot in front of the other. So one thing I wanted to say really quick is, Ben, I saw you at the Showbox just the other day, um, which was bittersweet to say the least. It is so weird to be in a club like the Showbox and for it to be empty. And for those outside of Seattle, Showbox is one of the best venues you will ever see a show at and is usually very full. And, um, you were very active in, you were on the show actually, um, talking about keeping the show box open. Remember the good old days when yeah. the show box closing was our big fear of, of <laughs> nightlife. And, uh, and he has a great song, um, gold rush that I just love that, that, uh, talks a lot about the development of Seattle and it kind of ties in to uh, the show box possibly closing. Well, now what we're seeing is I don't mean, mean to be alarmist. I think it's important. I don't believe most clubs will open back up and if they do, they will not be independent. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of having those independent venues? And I mean, they're so screwed. They're so yeah. they're so on the list of places screwed. Um, Amy and I own a bar. Uh, we're pretty high on that list of people who are screwed because a bar is a terrible thing. It turns out you don't know till a pandemic. But the worst thing you could probably yeah. own. But the only th well, not the only thing, but one of the worst things you could own is a club because clearly you need people to come in to buy booze for them to survive and be a part of this ecosystem. Let alone the bands who need these locations. And so, and on the list, politicians, as you know, as you worked really hard to try to keep the showbox open for there to be attention there, it takes a lot for politicians to recognize and city leaders to recognize the importance of music and the arts. It is a massive problem right now. So just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I echo all your sentiments. I think one of the issues that, that the music industry is having, and particularly the independent venue industry, if we could even call it an industry, is that the arts are such a low priority 
in this country. During normal times, it's difficult to finagle money from any city, state, federal body for the purpose of the arts in general, not even related to music and music venues. So now in Seattle and in every other city in America and around the world, but specifically in America, sadly, saving independent venues and live music is not a huge priority for any city, state, or federal governing body. It, you know, there are, there are so many other things right now that are taking precedence. And so I think for, from my perspective, I'm not sure how we go about putting pressure on our representatives right now to save something that is absolutely worth saving when people are facing evictions, people are uh, losing jobs, schooling is becoming decimated, infrastructure, name a hundred things before you I, get to live music. Live music and music in general is the most important thing in my life, but it's very difficult to place it in front of some more immediate concerns for the average American. Um, so where are we? We're in the situation where we are, we are in danger of losing a lot of independent venues. And one might say, well, you know, if we lose the crocodile, you know, there'll be another venue that'll open up. It doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, someone's gonna open a venue. And I would counter that with, well, yeah, someone might open a venue, but it might be Amazon presents the crocodile. And um, as a performer, you're no longer just going in there to play a show. You're going in there to, okay, well, we're going to film it for our Amazon Coffeehouse series. And, and uh, we're going to own that footage if you want to play here. We're going to own the recordings. And we might want to put it out on kind of our own music streaming service. You know, that's just what you're signing up for as an artist. And one might call me paranoid here, but I, I mean, we can check back when this is all over and see if I'm right here. And I don't mean to be specifically calling out Amazon. It could be Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It doesn't matter. Any, any large corporation that has an interest in owning intellectual property free and clear would be foolish to not take advantage of this moment where they can buy low on venues and then trick them out however they might need to trick them out so they can make even more money off of people like myself. That is a very, very real scenario you just talked about. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I look, I've been doing this for quite a while and I've done the AOL live session for whatever, fill in the blank, doing a promo run and signed reams of paper about who owns what. And I'm in a very unique position in relation to most musicians in that I came up at the tail end of people still selling albums. So I was able to make a fair amount of my living off of, you know, record sales, which is something that completely doesn't exist anymore. And we're at a place now where unless you're post Malone, you don't make any money off of streaming. So where does that leave all of us? It leaves us with publishing, which uh, sadly becomes less and less valuable as the, as the years go on, because it's just the glut of music in the world. Um, but also from playing live and selling merchandise at shows or albums at shows. And my fear uh, is that, you know, bands like Death Cab for Cutie will be fine. It's the bands that are going out on their first tours and they, in this dystopian world I've created in my mind, will be playing the Google Lounge, uh, formerly known as Barboza, and... Uh, and, you know, and be and be maybe even being paid less because 
the exposure they're going to get from the multimedia experience that Google will then disseminate on their behalf afterwards is really for their benefit. You know, we're really doing this for you. This is really all promo. We'll do this all for promo, but we're going to pay you less for the show. And look, I know I might sound old and paranoid here, but and I hope I'm wrong, but we'll see at the end of this where we are. Because I, 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 that, that to me is something that in relation to where venues might be going keeps me up at night. Amy, any last thoughts? Yeah, I just, you know, I think about musicians or artists who are just starting out or they're in that lower sort of pay scale and experience scale and small clubs are how they get their experience. And that's any performer, really. That's comedians. That's Mm -hmm. anyone who's doing that kind of thing who needs a small venue to tour in. They need not to be so intensely compromised (laughs) in, in who they are and what they're trying to create. And it has a huge impact, not just on the economics of their career or the possibility that they could ever have a career as a musician or an artist or a comedian or whatever, but it has real profound effects on their health on their mental health, on their physical health, because now they've completely compromised their integrity. And so it puts kind of a yucky feeling on the arts that now the arts are all corporate. And we already know that's a huge issue anyway, but I think what's kind of getting us in this moment and what's getting us um, thinking about the future is prioritizing art, prioritizing music as an essential you know, I think of it as essential. And no matter how much money you have or don't have, if you are evicted or have a job or not, you probably still have a song in your heart, right? You still have music you love or music you play, or it's, it's still a huge part of your life. It's essential, I guess is it what is I'm essential. saying. And I think what you said, Ben, about um, prioritizing clubs, because it is a hard conversation. Like, I will every once in a while go off on the government abandoning the hospitality industry, for instance, because I'm in mm. that with the bar. But I, I do it very rarely. And when people say, oh, it's so, it must be really, really hard. And someone was telling me that who is laid off and doesn't have a job and the unemployment's going to, and they're telling me that. So it's mm-hmm. immediately like, we're going to be okay. So it is interesting because I don't feel comfortable advocating for my own business because we, so many people are hurting right now that this is another reason that clubs and these things are in trouble. And I agree with it. Those are not the priorities, even though they are, but they're not because there's so much more we need to fix. Well, and I think, I think to your point, we are entering a very, uh, an accelerated period of haves and have nots. And, you know, we are seeing that in our own city. And I think one, one element that comes with that, and this might, I don't want to stray into too political of a corner here, but I think what's difficult about explaining to people why live music is important is that there are people who view those who own clubs as the man or see you guys as bar owners, like you guys are the man, when in actuality, <laughs> you're an independent business owner, you know, with, you know with, with the help of other people pooled all of your money to kind of create this thing that you always wanted to have in the world. And before the pandemic, the idea of this bar was vindicated by people coming in droves. I came there all the time. I, I love I love your bar. Love the food. And, you know, I think when we talk about club owners in Seattle, for example, I think one of the difficulties in translating the severity and urgency of this problem is that 
as the haves and have-nots continue to widen, it becomes difficult to recognize that some of the people who are being put in the haves category are really people who saved up a lot of their money and time and, and built these things with their own hands. But when people are on the street, when people are living in the parks, when people are struggling to pay the rent, it's very difficult to go out to the general public as someone who is technically a have and say, I'm worried that I'm going to lose the thing I have. Can you help me save the thing that I have? And then people, some people will be like, fuck you. I don't have anything. Why should I care about right. what you have? It's a very delicate issue to bring to the general public because there are too many people who have nothing right now. And if somebody has anything, they don't want to hear, or I should say some people don't want to hear about someone who has things having issues with maybe losing those things. Uh, one last thing. We saw a great post, something about Crisco and voting. And <laughs> somehow this came across my Instagram feed. I think it's your wife's account. She's a photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a picture of the two of you in your wedding outfits voting. Yeah. <laughs> it was just awesome. I'm like, wow, what's happening here? Who is that? What's going on? And uh, again, it was this like feel good, like beacon of hope thing. And I know it was your anniversary, but just the fact that I think she said you Criscoed yourselves into your wedding outfits. And, and yeah. so it looked like a like a marriage, like a new beginning. Right. And I don't know if you were thinking about that when you voted or if you were just thinking, oh, this would be fun. Uh, but it's super cool to see. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my my wife had this idea. Uh, her name's Rachel Demi. And uh uh, Rachel had this idea. We were trying to figure out what to do for our anniversary. There were some discussions about maybe going to dinner at one of our favorite restaurants that had outdoor seating, but with the weather changing and everything, it just it's not something we'd really count on. So Rachel had this idea of like, let's let's put let's dress up in our wedding clothes and drive around to our friends' houses. We we put a cooler in the back of our car <laughs> and we put a bunch of drinks in there and we brought our camp chairs. And just drove around to a bunch of our friends' houses and just surprised them, knocked on the door or texted them from outside, of course, and just sat on people's porches, you know, of course, socially distanced or in people's backyards. But one thing we wanted to do on the way out there was to drop off our ballots because I want to get this thing out of my life. I don't need to watch the debates. I don't need to read Politico. I don't need to. Do, I just need to check Joe Biden's name down there and Jay Inslee and a number of other things and just send this thing into the world. And Rachel had her friend Eric come out and take some photos of us. And what was really striking to me at the ballot box was that people were just kind of giving each other like a like a nod. As everybody was putting their ballots into the box, people were like, we're, yeah, we're going to do this, right? Well, Ben Gibbard, thank you for being with us today and spending some time with us. And uh, it's good to see you on, uh, on the other side of the city. Um, and when this pandemic's over, <laughs> to be able to see live music again and hopefully see you in front of us playing. And uh, thank you for everything. Thanks for all those performances, for hanging out with us today. And um, again, by just doing and showing up. And I think we need to recognize how important it is that um, people are showing up like you, be it playing music for people or just being out there and even spending your anniversary showing people you're voting is being and doing. And I think we need more of that. So thanks, Ben. Well, thank you. And that and that also cuts both ways. I mean, all the work that you've been doing on behalf of the city and, you know, getting up early every morning when I'm sure all you wanted to do was just 
lay in bed and just be terrified. You didn't do that. You got up and you got on the radio and you played music for people and you, you gave people a salve for what was ailing them and even in, in three and four minute increments and that's incredibly valuable. So thank you. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Oh, this world's starting to bring me 